Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the second episode of the Lent 2019 uh, term in our series of brief conversations with academics who are coming to present at our weekly seminar. Thank you so much for listening, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe so that you're notified every time we put up a new episode. My name is Arvin Aleg, and I'm a PhD student here at Cambridge, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Barbara D. Savage. Professor Savage is the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Thought and a Professor of Americana, uh, Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's currently a Harmsworth Visiting Professor of American History at the Rothmere Institute of at the Rothman Institute at the University of Oxford at Queens College. She studies 20th century African-American history, the history of American religious and social reform movements, the history of the relationship between media and politics, and black women's political and intellectual history. Her 2008 book, Your Spirit Walk Beside Us, The Politics of Black Religion, won the prestigious 2012 Grawmeyer Prize in Religion. She's also the author of Broadcasting Freedom, Radio, War, and the Politics of Race, between 1938 and 1948, which won the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library Award for the best book in American history in the period 1916 to 66. She's currently working on an intellectual biography of Murs Tate, an African-American woman who pioneered in the fields of diplomatic history and international relations during her tenure at Howard University from 1942 to 1977. Trained at both Oxford and Harvard, Tate was one of the few black women academics of her generation. A prolific scholar with a wide range of interests her works covered the fields of disarmament, the diplomatic and political histories of the Pacific, the role of railways and mineral extraction industries in the colonization of Africa, among many, many other things. And later today, Professor Savage will be delivering a paper entitled Beyond Illusions, War, Imperialism, and Race in Murray State's International Thought to our American History Seminar. And I've read the paper. I've absolutely loved it. And I can't wait to ask you some questions about it. Um, first off, I want to ask you just a general question. How would you say this project specifically fits into your broader work over the past few years? Uh, this project really comes out of a collaboration with some friends who are also scholars as we were interested in bringing more attention to um, African-American um, women intellectuals, including scholars. And so we ended up doing a project on um, black women's intellectual history that yielded a volume, 13 other uh, historians and literary scholars. And we decided that we each would also do a piece for the volume. And so I had to hunt around and find some new work. And uh, Tate was someone I knew of vaguely through my um, years of working in the archive at Howard. And so I began to look at her published work and was really fascinated by its range and variety. And so I decided to do a shorter piece on her, and then it, it became clear to me that she was deserving of something much more uh, detailed. But that's how it began. So what sort of scholarship around Tate had there been before you start, You wrote this essay in this collection? There had, been a, there had been attention to her from scholars who study the history of education and study the history mm -hmm. of, of African-American education, and particularly women in, um, in black higher, higher ed. Um, where she was one of a constellation of other scholars. But in terms, and, and that scholarship, I should say, was related primarily to um, the role of women in academic communities. I wanted to bring, I think, much needed attention to the content and to her, to her scholarship 
And so, um, so in, th in, in that way, this work is, um, is, is new in building on this large body of published work and also an enormous archive of personal papers and writings. And the archives at Howard, I'm assuming? At Howard, oh, yeah. Very cool. She uh, saw herself as being historically significant and so, which is a credit Rightly to so, her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so she donated her uh, archive to Howard in the mid to late 1970s. She graduated, she, I'm sorry, retired in 1977. And in that period, she, she donated her materials there. And so she is one of the those few black women who actually has an archive, because mm -hmm. it's always one of the both the excuses and I think also one of the challenges of doing uh, African-American women's history more generally, but she is someone with a voluminous archive as well as four decades of published work. And so um, it's, a, it's a big project and a much bigger project than I thought when I began it, but I'm trying to see it through. Mm. Well, so from what I've read so far of yours, it's really, really enlightening and illuminating in so many ways. Um, and I know you're visiting from uh, the United States from Penn, um, and I just want to ask how your experience has been studying African-American history in the UK so far, and if there are any major institutional differences you've encountered um, in how this, the field is approached compared to the US. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that is clear is that there's a tremendous amount of interest in African-American history at Oxford, and I imagine here as well, yeah, among students and and um, and faculty who are who are interested in questions of race and resistance or empire or or, or uh, imperialism, and so the interest is there, and a certain set of resources are available for people who are interested in doing the work, but the real uh, the real infrastructure that one needs to be able to do African American history more and to teach it more and to teach it more widely are still, um, you know, still really need to be built up here, in my view. And that's not a criticism, it's just an observation. And I know that people who are committed to the field share that view, and they're much more frustrated than I am because I will leave in a few months and go back to the United States. And so I see um, the process of folks trying to get more resources to do more um, studying and teaching of African-American history and, and institutions that, as in the United States, have to be prodded uh, to do that or to, or to recognize why doing that is in their self-interest and important to their students. Definitely. Well, I think the work that you're doing now and the work that so many other people are doing now are at the forefront of you know creating this, creating curiosity among students and creating that need for you know more institutional resources and more uh, more institutional interest in for future years. So I think that um, it's important that that we're all doing this work here to stimulate yeah. that. Yeah, and, right? and the other thing I think that Tate speaks to, and this is and this would also be true of Jeffrey Stewart's um, recent book on Elaine Locke, and which includes a, a lovely treatment of his time at Oxford is that when you're able to bring it home that way, and even to talk about Tate there in the mid-1930s, and what must that have been like for her when she was the only, at that point, she was the only black American there, and to realize that some of the challenges and questions that she had or that faced him 
um, are still are very resonate very much with students of color there and students who are interested more generally in in race. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can definitely test to that um, mm -hmm. on a few levels. And kind of going to that, uh, my next question has to do with um, a book that one of your new Oxford colleagues, Stephen Tuck, wrote um, about Malcolm X's speeches at the Union in 1964. Um, and in that, when I was reading it a couple years ago, I noticed how he describes the, the dynamic of uh, many colored students enrolled at Oxford in the early and mid 20th century. And, you know, um, these black and brown students were uh, often of the elite class in their home country, very anglicized, you know, the children of colonial administrators generally. Mm -hmm. um, in, in his reading, uh, generally sympathetic of colonial rule, but then upon arriving to the metropole, they're very alienated after being treated, that coming to the harsh realization that they're not, they're not British in the, in the way that um, white Brits understood uh, British identity at the time. And in fact, you know, a lot of them uh, return to become sort of nationalist agitators in their home countries, sometimes playing pivotal roles in securing their country's independence. Um, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit of Dr. Tate's political consciousness during her time at um, Oxford and um, how she sort of understood the relationship between um, being an other in these institutions, uh, like you said, as many still feel in Oxford and universities across the UK and US today. Um, and how that sort of affects her political development. Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer, and I may be able to answer it better when I'm actually done with the project. Mm -hmm. I think one distinction I would draw in the, in the way that you, can, you kind of set the question up is that there is a difference between being an American Definitely. who comes to, to Oxford and someone who may be coming from what is now the Commonwealth mm -hmm. um, and someone who may have a sense of very different relationship to Britain into sense of being British and being you know a part of that, um, and and then runs into questions of color and race once they're actually uh, at Oxford or Cambridge or wherever. For Tate and I think for Americans of color, in some ways it's a very familiar kind of feeling. Um, they don't really have that affinity for Great Britain. What they have is the sense of American awe towards British erudition and, and education and training. And so in some ways, while they're at Oxford or Cambridge, they are basically transforming themselves into cosmopolitans in a different kind of way, mm -hmm. that it's seen as another badge of their exceptionalism and their abilities and, they, and, and their obligations to represent the race wherever they are. Mm -hmm. So, it's, so yeah. that is, you know, that's always kind of bundled up uh, in their... Um, with it. And I think that the other difference for Tate is that as a woman at Oxford, at the time she was there, there were women's colleges, but there were very few women at Oxford, and they certainly were not visible. And she was even on the margins of that in, in terms of where she was placed in the college that she was in. And so she really operated in the smaller world mm. of women there. Yeah. However, I think the women there who were welcoming to her, and they and they were, um, also had a category for her, and the category they had for her was the category of the you know the colored uh, member of of uh, you know one of the um, nations of the former empire. So whether that is you know India or Jamaica or wherever, so they would treat her uh, as if she was one of that group. And so they had a protocol for that. Mm -hmm. um, but on the whole, I think she felt 
that she was well treated and that she was welcomed there in those smaller spaces. But she also would say that anyway, because she was someone who would who would tend to minimize what were really what were you know differences. Um, but I I also think that she that she did well academically. She took advantage of institutional resources and libraries that would have been closed to her in the U.S. We have to forget in nineteen remember in nineteen thirty many of the things institutions cultural music all of that would have been segregated and or forbidden so in that way it was really a more open place really um, so it actually it's it's relative to where you're coming from but it's important when she's coming from 1930s segregated united states and yeah. so in that way um it opened up a certain set of possibilities for her. I don't know the answer to the question of how it affected, affected her in the long run. I think it, I know it gave her tremendous intellectual and academic confidence, which is important, but in terms of how, which I think is what your question is about, in terms of how it affected her work and how it, it kind of plays itself out there. I mean, her work does concern itself with people of color whether in Hawaii or um, in, certainly later when she's writing about Africa. And she spends a great bulk of her career is actually spent writing about the Pacific. And so she has a pretty clear critique of British imperialism and other empires as well. But I can't yet draw that line uh, directly to her time at you know, at Oxford. Right. I, I would love to, but I don't know it. I don't know yet. Yeah. Because yeah. this is still very much you know, a work in progress. Yeah, and I, I remember in your paper you write about how she's so, in a way that, um, you know, confounds many of, like, the strict, n- relatively narrow, discipline-minded yes. people over time. She sort of weaves together all these sorts of different, yes. um, you know, methodologies and stuff to provide this really comprehensive picture of things like armament and, and world economy and how that plays into histories of imperialism, and I thought that was so, so compelling. Yeah, I think that's just one of the things that's really interesting about her to me is that, so she's trained in these highly structured, very traditional institutions, both at Oxford and at Harvard. And we don't think that that is like some, um, you know, hotbed of liberal thought when she's there in the early 1940s. And yet in both, from both of those institutions, she's able to take what she learned um, not be completely restricted by it, expand on it, and then cobble together and use the bits of it that are useful to the questions that she wants to explore. And so that's to her credit, and I think it, strength, it speaks to the strength of her confidence in herself, her, her own kind of stubborn, stubbornness about pursuing her own interests, and, and really just following the pathway that and following her own intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. too, which is you know why you end up with a body of work that's as mixed as the one that she has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that kind of is a good transition to my next question, which um, talks more broadly about you know uh, Black and Africana studies in general as a field. Um, you know, from its outset, it's been you know inseparable from politics, and it's been interdisciplinary in its methodology and its methodological approach, and it's tasked with a number of you know, objectives. And one of those is elaborating, you know, or, you know, elaborating the global color line, clarifying what what that is and how those dynamics have played in both colonial, post-colonial, you know, national in the U.S. context. Um, So all these different contexts. And Dr. Tate, you know, like so many black scholars over time, truly embodied these foundational tenets in her intellectual projects. 
Would you say that she had a role in um, pioneering, at least intellectually, the field of Africana studies in general, or is that, or is that come from a different lineage that she's not that plugged I into? I think it. I think it comes from a different lineage, but she's involved in it, and I like, and and because it's impossible to avoid it if you have a career at Howard University from yeah. 1942 to 1977, and to be living in Washington, D.C., and just to be you know, a thinking, reading, engaged black person in that period. What we see with someone like Tate, because she's one of the few African-American scholars who does not write on domestic racial issues, and she spends a lifetime telling people that, um, she, you see her then in this period when Howard, in response to student protests in the 1960s, when Howard has to adjust its own teaching, which is, had been fairly classical, to include more subjects related to Africa or African Americans. So you see Tate engaged as a faculty member in those debates. And she's not opposed to it, but she's very, very much wants to make sure that if there are if there's an increased teaching and research on African Americans, that it not be wholly domestic. Mm-hmm. She sees that as short sighted. She sees it as parochial, uh, and she sees it as 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 missing the point um, that African Americans are one of any number of minorities around the world who suffer from some of the same sort of pressures and tensions. And so she would be the one who would be making those arguments, try to make these global connections. And in part, because if there is going to be a move at Howard towards more resources and more teaching in those fields, and if she's going to play a role in it as someone who's a non-Americanist, she, that's, that's her only way to stay engaged in it. I think she does want to be engaged with it. And so she's an interesting figure in that way. Um, She's not someone I would call a radical. I think we want our scholars and our intellectuals to all be radicals. Uh, I would say that I can see her thought and the evolution of her thought over time and it shifts and changes. And there, she has ideas that are actually fairly radical in the 30s and 40s that are, by the time you get to the 60s, 70s, they're not radical anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's the blessing of a really long life. Um, mm-hmm. But I do see her playing that role to try to keep a focus in black studies on the global mm-hmm. and identification with other peoples of color and not just other people of African descent around, and, and not just people in Africa, but a particular uh, interest in people in, of color in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know she also, in the paper you wrote about how she had some visit to India as well, which is... She spent a, she spent a year in India uh, as a Fulbright scholar, mm-hmm. actually. She was in those early Fulbrights, 1950 to 1951, and was uh, able to spend a, a year near um, Calcutta mm-hmm. uh, at Tagore's uh, World University, right, which right, is in yeah. Sananikatan. And to use that as a base to travel all over India and teach about geopolitics and international relations. And also, she was expected and was able to teach about African Americans and the history of racial inequality in the United States. So the two, one of the two highlights in her life that she looked back on it as a much older person, uh, certainly the three years she spent at Oxford were very important to her, but the year in India as mm. well. And so um, I'm, I'm actually planning to go to India oh, at the end of this week oh, to wow. spend, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> packing as we speak here, um, to, 
to retrace her steps and to go to um, the university where she, that meant so much to her and to try to get a better sense of what it would have been like as well as I can to have been there in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, at that, at that period in, in Indian political history. Oh, yeah. uh, so, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, yeah. and I know um, a lot of um, what you've been saying and what you write about in the paper, her, her views on, you know, not necessarily narrowing the the color question to the United States. It, mm-hmm. It's evocative of Du Bois in a lot of ways. And I know you wrote uh, in the, you mentioned the article that she held Du Bois very esteemed. She did. Um, she she yeah. had a great deal of respect uh, for Du Bois. And, uh, and I, which is not surprising. I think any scholar in that period would have. Okay. And I think she especially judging by both the volume of work that he was doing and the diversity of thinking that he was doing was relevant to her own interest in international relations and his early attention to questions that other people were not really trained to do. She would have been, and I know that she was a great, had a great deal of respect for his intellect and his training and how prolific he was. Oh, yeah. um, oh, and yeah. so, yes, she was, she was very, very respectful uh, of him. Very, very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Well, I guess I've, we have a few fun questions just to wrap up. Okay. Um, so what's a book or article you've read in the last 12 months that got you just really excited and really... This is a, a little bit unusual. I read Nell Painter's uh, memoir mm-hmm. uh, called um, Being Old in Art School. That may not be the exact title, but that's the point. And you may know Nell Painter was yeah. a, is an esteemed uh, historian and who retired from Princeton a few years ago, had had a long-standing interest in being in art and artistic production, had taken courses in New Jersey and then went to RISD oh, wow. uh, to become an artist. And so her memoir on that is an extraordinarily brave telling of what it means at a certain age in, in, in your life to decide you're going to go back and learn something new and do it, you know, alongside people who are 40 to 50 years younger than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the midst of the retelling of this story, she is also dealing with the illness of her elderly parents, mm-hmm. which is kind of a surprising bit in there. So it is a riveting um, read, and it just brings lots of questions um you know, to the front in terms of the way that we think about ourselves as historians, as academics, and what it means to then broaden ourselves and to also con- always want to continue to be learning and doing new things. Mm-hmm. So that is not, uh, that's the thing that actually I found most compelling in the last a number of months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I know I read about you a little bit. I know you used to be a lawyer. I did. Right? So how, how did yeah. you make that trend? I know. Yeah, there, and I think that's one of the things I identified yeah, in the definitely. book with her. I was, I, was, I was younger than she was when she uh, decided, but I do know what it's like to sit in the classroom when everybody's 15 years younger than you. And I felt also probably better educated than I was in a pure way. Um, but you bring what you bring. And uh, mm-hmm. if you're willing to do the work and you have to kind of humble yourself to wanting to learn a new skill and that's what being a historian or a writer is and if you're able to do that at some point your maturity and what you have done in the past will will help mm-hmm. and will enable you to do 
work uh, that you may not have, I would not have been able to do if I had done this right out of, you know, right out of college. And so I resonate with, there's a, some of that in that memoir. So I do, I do think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to do work that felt more meaningful and mm-hmm. that I thought would, you know, would contribute um, more broadly to questions of history and race. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So was yours, was there any sort of like moment like any, did you have like an epiphany or something as a lawyer when you kind of? Well, I was never a lawyer, lawyer in the sense of of the more traditional. I had worked in Washington and had done, um, I'd worked on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. I had worked at the Children's Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you really want to know the truth, the the moment or the period that really gave me pause about being engaged in politics was the election of Ronald Reagan. Oh wow. And I kind of witnessed that firsthand, and then the um, the Senate would turn to Republican, and it was a, a period that ushered in a level of um, poli- a kind of politics and a kind of meanness in politics that um, was different, and I just um, it just was a moment where I, I did not want to really be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Very understandable. <laughs> very, very understandable. Hopefully, you know, there... Uh, we can talk about this after the podcast, because I, I definitely want to hear more of your thoughts on that and your experiences. Um, another next question. What's the most interesting place you've been for research? Maybe you might want to wait a week to answer yeah, this yeah. question. <laughs> it might be India. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think the most interesting place I've been for research... Um, I have gone out to Michigan to retrace where Tate grew up, which mm-hmm. is a really small town in central Michigan, and then was able to visit uh, the cemetery where she's buried with her family, and just to get a sense of the space of that rural area, yeah. um, because it still is very much farmland and pretty much untouched from when she was when she grew up there. And to get a sense of the, the isolation and the beauty, but the isolation of that rural environment and to understand on some, some level why she also needed to leave, even though she wanted to be buried there. I mean, it certainly was where she felt rooted. Yeah. And so that was it had its own, kind of own poignancy, uh, I would say. Yeah. And so that it's not like... Um, digging around. I think I did research on her at Oxford before I came, long before I, I got this professorship, and that was, was very meaningful as well, mm-hmm. to see her student file, which they have oh, wow. at one of the colleges there. So, um, But Howard University is my archival home. I, my entire career has depended on them, mm-hmm. um, and so um, and I'm very happy about that. Um, but I would like to answer this after I go to India and yeah. come back. <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious. So, was this the first sort of project in which you've traced, you know, the sort of intellectual trajectory of one person? Because it, it it's seems a like bi- a diff- it's a biographical yeah. project, okay, and yeah. I try not to talk about it that way because that way of talking about it intimidates me. Because I think it require <laughs> it may require a set of literary chops that uh, I'm certainly untested, and so I'm confident and comfortable with doing the historical research and the mm. archive detective work and putting it all together and even being able to tell the story of her life and her work I think I can do that Um, but there's so many people who do biographies that are beautiful in part because they 
they deploy literary techniques, um, and okay. I'm not, I'm not adept, I'm not planning to do that, and so I will see how this form suits me. Well, I mean, the subject material is so compelling, and I mean, Tate has such a story, like a story that's unparalleled in terms of yes. And my biggest fear is writing a boring book oh, about no. someone. It's really fascinating. <laughs> I'm sure that will not be the case. It's, it's entirely possible. <laughs> um, so that's my fear: is, I, is that I, the vibrancy of her life and her complexity and complications? I want to be able to capture all of that, um, but her story is certainly, you know, is compelling. And I don't want to get in the way of that. So um, we will see. But it'll be it'll be a writing challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, just anecdotally, I the, I thought your your paper for tonight was very well written, and it was very gripping in a lot of ways. So Good. thank you. That, thank you. <laughs> um, and last question: um, What's your favorite album? This is such a funny question to have from someone of your generation because the concept of an album is is alien to you, isn't it? It's, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's making its way back. back. I know, I know, because I have a room full of LPs. I even still own a turntable. Uh, I'm terrible at answering questions like this. Okay. And so I don't have, because it's really difficult for me to choose. I have very eclectic music taste but music is very important to me mm-hmm. and so the people who came to mind when you rather than the albums the people who came to mind are Aretha Franklin and mm-hmm. and, um, and Ella Fitzgerald oh that was um, one of my favorites uh, early Miles Davis yeah. of course um, Sam Cooke I mean all of yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the kind of the people I grew up on and then I you know like certain classical music as well um uh, Foray's Requiem, Mahler's Fourth Symphony, and depending on the mood, I can go anywhere in between that. Yeah. But there's always music on, unless I'm writing. Yeah. 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 Great. So, anyway, but thanks for that. I thought, oh. <laughs> that, that, that. I thought, which Aretha Franklin album? I couldn't do that either. So, yeah. I miss her. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that yeah. one, you know, yeah. it hurts recent. Yeah, it <laughs> um, But great. Professor Savage, thank you so much thank for you. speaking I've with me. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation. Yes. I'm really looking forward to tonight's discussion. Good. Thank you. I am too. Thanks. I'm, I'm grateful for the invitation to be here. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All, All right. right. Good enough. And thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>